Uh, I wanted to read a couple of definitions of uh, words. We've been doing some talking about transformation and about being, and then we've used the word enlightenment. And our, our book talks about awakening, and uh, I thought rather than being too obtuse, it might be helpful just to, to read a couple of definitions. I'm reading this out of a book called uh, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And in one place, he defines enlightenment as your natural state of felt oneness with being. Because sometimes we get an idea of that you really got to be, you know, really out there, and you know that is only available to people in a monastic setting after you know very prolonged practice over a long period of time. But his definition of enlightenment is your natural state. A felt oneness with being. It is essentially you, and yet it is much greater than you. It is finding your true nature beyond name and form. He defines being as, it is the eternal, ever-present one life beyond the myriad forms of life that are subject to birth and death. The eternal, ever-present one life beyond the myriad forms of life that are subject to birth and death. And in this book he uses the word being interchangeably with God. He he said we have so we have so such strong feelings about the word God that it has almost become that we can oh God, I know God. We, we just have this you know, we have so much information and thinking about it that sometimes when we use the word being we cannot shut that down as much as we can sometimes shut down and close what we mean in our minds by God. And it says being, it says this means that it is accessible to you now at your deeper self, your own true nature. But don't seek to grasp it with your mind. Don't try to understand it. You will know it only when your mind is still. And one of the questions people have been coming up and asking us is, how do you enlarge your concept of God? How do you enlarge your, your experience of God? And one, I believe in many ways that the, that the language of your higher power is silence. And that what is in the way of many of us experiencing God is our compulsive, obsessive, addictive thinking, and that we have to find a way to reduce that noise and to start to have some access to some sort of silence or space in which to experience God. One of his other definitions of enlightenment is it a state of wholeness and being at one and therefore at peace, at one with life in its manifest forms, the world, as well as your deepest self and the unmanifest form, which is being. What is in the way of the experience of being and what is in the way of the experience of enlightenment in great substance is our thinking. It is our mind. So when we try to contain God in words, you know, you can't contain God in words. The words point. Someone said is when the master points to the moon, all the idiot sees is the finger. Uh, because words are signposts. You know, they, they literally point to something that is transcendent, to something that is beyond themselves. And we need to realize that, I think, sometimes in the big books, that, you know, everybody says, read the black part. You know, like, you know, all you got to do is read 164 pages and you'd be enlightened. And the fact is, I believe that that is uh, of God, and I believe it is so, but I believe it is very profound. And I believe that those words, often what they point to is is beyond what the, the words themselves say, and sometimes we we sacri- you know we accept just as long as we know the words, we think we have the message and we think we have the experience, and and we don't. So uh, in order for for many of us to so we're sober, we're in AA, we're doing the steps, and many of us are stuck. How do you get unstuck? Uh, surrender is the solution, but that's not easy. That's transformational. Just can't snap your fingers and bring that one into a command to be at your fingertips. But we should be able to access it. I think with with a certain attitude and with a certain persistence, with the rain dance philosophy that can talked about is that if you do a rain dance long enough, you will have rain. 
I believe that the fact that we search for God pleases God. I believe that if we, when, when Ken talked about your schedules being full, someone said, how do you find God? Well, it's a search. What do you do? I mean, I don't know. I read five books a year that, you know, or have some spiritual content or some, you know, some direction of someone who's a little further down the path than I am that has given me. I have tapes that I listen to on a regular basis that, you know, kind of, you know, are pregnant with ideas and philosophies that, you know, kind of, uh, titillate my, my mind and my hunger for, for God. I have a spiritual director who I talk to regularly and the only purpose of that talk is to have a conversation about how I am and the, you know, the book said that probably no human power could have believed your alcoholism and God could and would if he were sought. And you ask yourself the question, how much time do you spend seeking God? You know, I asked myself that question when I was eight years sober and I didn't like the answer. And I believe that going to meetings is seeking God. I believe that talking to your sponsor is seeking God. But at some point, I asked myself that question, huh, Bob, how much time do you spend seeking God? And the answer I got back was not much. I mean, and I was going to a lot of meetings, and I was a pretty active member of AA. And I started then to add to my reading program. I started then to have people that I had more specific spiritual conversations with. I go to a couple of retreats a year. I go to, you know, I probably talk at 12 or 14, 15 roundups a year, but I also attend four or five conferences and roundups that I don't speak at. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm probably every other weekend I'm at a conference listening to people talk about the program and recovery. We get a lot of stimulation with that. I mean, sometimes if all you're doing is going to the same two or three AA meetings with the same people that, that you do, you can get, you can, and sometimes you lose the wonder of, of that and you can, it, it can start to feel stagnant. Once, once in a while when I get guys that get a little bit flat, I say, do something different. I mean, go to a group you've not been to. Go to, Read a book that you, I mean, do something that you cannot neutralize or negate before you even go to do it. Do something that you don't know in your mind, you know, that has some expectation to do that. So if you are what you fill yourself full of, do not be surprised. The world, if you're filling yourself full of the world, you're going to be neurotic. You're going to be looking for the answer outside. You're going to be unhappy with yourself. <clears throat> you are not going to be centered. You're not going to be at peace. You're going to, you're going to be in trouble. If you're full of the world, you need to get centered. The only peace that you're going to have on an ongoing basis, the only ability to be grounded and to be connected with life, is not one that is mind and ego based. It is God based. In order to do that, you have to kind of step aside from your identification with your mind. The freedom that I have had, I, uh, if you ask my wife, or my children, they would still kind of laugh. I'm kind of spring-loaded head for 60 miles an hour, no, no helmet. Uh, I know I look like a burnout old guy, uh, but there was a time when I didn't always look like it. I just haven't taken care of the vehicle. Uh, but we have done some travel. And... Uh, Why'd they bring that up? <laughs> absolutely burned out. Just kind of. Yeah. We're going to come back. <laughs> I know that feeling. I, uh, What used to be a senior moment has now become rolling blackouts. Uh, you know, I guess, <laughs> so I, I understand that very, very well. You know, what I heard Bob saying is that, uh, you know, you can spend so much time, and it's very, and unfortunately, when you look around the world today, this is what's happening. People have beliefs, and belief means you don't know. Belief means you're going with what someone told you, and you don't really know. And uh, the other thing is, is that... Uh, People are so concerned with the image of God that once you get beyond the image of God to the essence of God, everybody seems to be on the same page. You know, God is love and all the other good things that we talk about, but we're so busy forming an image of him 
or her or whatever, that we, we lose out on the essence part. And uh, God is too, do, too good to be reduced to an image. You know, and uh, if we could imagine God as he really is, then he wouldn't be God. You know, it's got to be beyond us. Uh, I know he has a good sense of humor. Anybody who would give man his sexual peak at 18 and women hers at 40 is is somebody who likes to tinker. You know, as a, you know, I I, I know that uh, I know that God likes to laugh, and I know the other thing is that when like you folks are laughing now, I also know that you cannot laugh and think at the same time. It's impossible. So every time you laugh, you're getting a respite from your favorite topic, which is you. And and I know another thing about laughter, which ties in with what we were talking about all morning, is the fact that the reason that something, first of all, man is the only animal in the animal kingdom that can laugh. Because we're the only animal in the animal kingdom that can see the absurdity of something. And the other thing is the fact that when someone is telling you a joke, our minds are so trained that they're not in the moment. Our minds are incapable of being in the moment. So when someone is telling you a joke or me a joke, we're leapfrogging to what we think is the next logical thing. And when the punchline comes, it's totally illogical. And it actually tricks our mind because our mind has jumped to what it perceives will be the answer. And the answer is totally out of sync. Now, if you laugh at the same joke a half a dozen times, then, you know, you need help beyond this room. So, But the reality is, is that's why something is funny. And and someone said about the logic of something. You know, there is no logic in this world. There is no logic. If this were a logical world, men would ride side saddles, and we don't. You know, just a, there's 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 absolutely there's absolutely no logic. And that's that's the mind game. Is that you you give the mind that the the, the, the most important thing that any one of us does, any one of us is the way we see ourselves, because it's within the context of how we see ourselves that we're going to evaluate everything else. Our mind is going to go to great lengths to prove us right in every scenario, and it's going to go to great lengths to prove that we're seeing it correctly, and the other folks just happen to be confused at the moment. And in so doing, it feeds back to us what it needs to sustain itself, not what we need to sustain ourselves, but what it needs to sustain itself. And that's when God becomes the, pro- the primary purpose of your, of your life, then what happens is the mind becomes very secondary. We wouldn't take, you know, when people say to me, uh, you know, I go to meetings and I say, well, when I get up in the morning, my mind's waiting for me and, it, you know, it, it has me doing things. If, if you are acting out your life like that, then it is not your mind. You're its body. It's not your mind. You wouldn't take that crap from your hand, you know. If your hand said, I'm going to do this on your own, you say, wait for me, wait for me. You know, like, hey, you wouldn't have a hand going off doing something you didn't want it to do. But you let the mind do that because it's in charge, and it leads you to believe that this is in your best interest. And the minute you start to get into the spiritual realm and you start to open the doors that have never been opened before, then the essence of God comes in and you begin to realize that this mind is a tool. It's just like your foot or your or your eyes or your nose. It, it should be used as a tool. It shouldn't be running my life. I had a, I rented a car about a year ago. It was the first experience I had with this. And, and it had one of those global positioning systems on it. And I punched it in and it snowed where I was at. So I thought, well, I'll run it through the car wash a rental car and I ran it through the car wash and in so doing I came out of the car wash in the wrong direction and I made another turn which put me even further away from the direction I should have been going and suddenly this voice came on and it says please follow direction (laughs) and I thought God if I had had this at 16 or 17 you guys wouldn't even see me I mean if I got that immediate response to like hey what you're doing is incorrect and then I realized that I've needed a sponsor from the time I was a child. You know, I needed a sponsor in kindergarten. You know, I needed someone to say, you know, call out from the kindergarten and have them say, Ken, relax, you know, eat the cookies, take the nap. You know, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, I needed a lot of hands on. And I just, uh, you know, 
had I gotten that, I think it would have put me in a whole other deal. But I was left to my own devices, and my own devices were were very selfish and self-centered. This entire big book, which I like to refer to as the owner's manual, is not about freedom of self anymore, because I did that when I was drinking. I had freedom of self. And this is freedom from self. This is a whole different... This is this is a whole way of going at life that's different than the way I've used before. And the reality of going at it from a whole different perspective is the fact that it's going to open up doors and windows that were never opened before. God is screaming to come into my life. And I'm and I'm running around. You know, I'm like I if you want a visual of me, I'm a man standing on a whale fishing for minnows. You know, that's who I am. I got this unbelievable thing that's accessible to me, and I'm spending my time doing other things. And what what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous, it happens at me at meetings when they start to read how it works, is somehow I get pulled into that moment. You know, I, I just seem to get pulled in there. I have no defense against the next meeting. I'm very fortunate. I just go. And in going, what happens is, I get dragged at least for that period of time into the moment. And the reality here is that uh, um, I have a friend who just came back from being in Iran, which is, I know, not a good empire, supposedly. But AA is now four years old over there. And wonderful, unbelievable things are happening. Al-Anon, they have 18 Al-Anon meetings now in Tehran. And he just came back and he and he cried. And he said, Ken, in the mosque, the women are not allowed to go and pray, and yet they can come to AA meetings. And in these very mosques with the picture of the Khomeini hanging up there, you must be having a great time with this. There they are in there, and they're reading how it works and doing a regular AA meeting. This thing is unbelievable. You know, this thing is unbelievable. Uh, Bill and Bob, I, I talked to Bob's son about this one time, and he said, you know, had my dad been in charge of this thing, we'd still be meeting at my house in Akron. He said, and if Bill had been in charge of it on his own, he said, we'd be franchised like McDonald's. He said, but somehow God in his infinite wisdom put the blend of both of these men together. And in that blend has come this deal. I mean, every time I look out at an AA group from being on a podium or behind us, I'm just amazed. I'm thinking the number of people with the number of stories. It's too bad we just don't have time to go around the room and have everybody give their stories because that's really the deal that got you here. And every time I hear someone share, they get to a certain point in their story, whether they be the speaker behind the podium or the speaker from the floor or just someone sharing, they get to the same critical point. And when they get to that point, they'll say, something happened. It doesn't have to be defined. We're too much into definitions. It doesn't have to be defined. When you say to me something happened, I know what happened. You know what happened. The words become very secondary. The fact that you were doing something that you couldn't stop doing, and now you're doing something completely different, is all the evidence you need to know that some force greater than yourself can be. A complete psychic change. So if you are suffering from alcoholism, you may be suffering from a condition that only a spiritual experience, that only a spiritual experience can cure. The great fact is this and nothing less that we have had deep effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellows and towards God's universe central fact of our lives today with absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us that we could never do for ourselves. And when we talk in other places in the book about uh, when, when Young is talking to Hazard and he says, here and there once in a while alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me these occurrences are phenomena. They appear in the nature of large emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes that were once the guiding forces of our lives are suddenly, suddenly cast aside 
and then a completely new set of conceptions and motivations begin to dominate them. I mean, that's not linear. That is like a sex change operation. Ideas, emotions, attitudes, which are once the guided forces of the lives of these men and women, are suddenly cast to one side, and a completely new set of, co of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. Time and time again, this book talks about the problem, and then all of a sudden it says, suddenly, at once. You know, and it's, that is the action of God. It is, you know, the problem is removed. It is lifted. It is just extraordinary. I remember now what I was trying to do before, which I'm doing the drum roll. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just so pleased with the idea that I. <laughs> uh, I talked about being spring loaded. I am a man who uh, I sponsor a, num a number of guys. And one of the things that you get to do over a period of time is you just kind of watch patterns of thought of people that you run into. And, and in that process, you are gifted with the idea of starting to see patterns in your own thinking. You get to see evolutions of your own, of your own thinking. And what I see so often in the, in the early guys, the primitive sort of thing, they're almost not aware that they're thinking. They just get an idea and the idea is like imprinted on their eyeball. And it is their reality. They are in the play with the helmet, with the spear, there is nothing else. It is their reality. They are acting out this thought, an idea, as it goes through their mind, and there is no other thought, there is no other idea, there is no other choice. They are so involved in that reality. And when you have that conversation with them, it's all there is. There is no perspective. You, 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 there is almost no place to have a conversation with someone who is in that kind of primitive lockdown you know, sort of thing. They're just, they're feeding it back to you, and that's what it is. As time went on in my sobriety, I started to get a sense that I didn't always see things the way everybody else saw. I don't know where I got that, but I did, I did start to get that. That's a new thought. That is a new thought. I, it never occurred to me, honest to God, that I didn't perceive things as they were. Never, I, never occurred to me. Now, it occurred to me that I, I made the wrong decision, but it never occurred to me that I perceived them as being different than they were. I thought, how the hell do you perceive them wrong? I mean, you're just there, you look at it, I'm watching it. Okay? But it's very different. So I used to get a thought, and then I'd have a reaction. I was like a jukebox. You put a quarter in, you push B5. I played B5. You want to play B5? We'll play B5. If I had no choice. It was mechanical. I was a monkey on a string. You pull the string, I dance. Now, what has happened over a period of time is I have become less identified with my mind and with my thinking. As Ken said, it's a tool. Okay? Now, it has, for most of us, for most of our lives, been in charge. The tool has been in charge. The computer has been in charge. And now we start to have access to the mainframe. We do not have this little handheld job that we've been walking around with is not up to it. It's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Now I have an opportunity for the first time. So today I start, I get a chance to observe my thinking. You understand that? Now almost all of us from time to time have a chance to observe our thinking. So that's like having a gap. That's like having a space. I never had that space. Thought, action, thought, action, thought, action. Now there's a gap. And in the gap, I realize, first of all, I'm not the thought. And I'm not the thinker. I'm observing the thinker. When people start to sometimes have an experience of meditation, I talked about silence being the language of God. Uh, there was a book called, uh, there was a man called Rollo May who was the son of, uh, Gerald May who was the son of Rollo May and he wrote a number of books. One of them called, uh, uh, Spirit and Grace. That's not that funny. Not that funny. There will come a time in your development where you can actually have humor that doesn't have to be at the expense of someone else. I, I, I don't know. I don't know when that is, but I, I mean, I think that's nice. 
No, I, uh, I know he wrote Addiction and Grace, but he also wrote uh, this other book. But anyway, he talked about unitive moments. He talked about walking through the woods and coming to a glade and having an opening, and all of a sudden in that opening, there was just a total absence of thought, and there, you were one in being with the universe. And that many of us have had that in front of a mountain or at the ocean or we've had what they call those unitive moments. That moment ends when you are there. That moment ends with you observing what you're doing. With your thinking about what you're doing. But in the moment, in that space, there is no thought. Meditation, one of the primary things that people try to do in meditation is to clear the mind. To stop the compulsive, obsessive process of thinking. To sink to the bottom, grab a hold of the weeds, and let the thoughts go by like boats on a river because you, you can't absolutely always stop the process, but you can disengage from that process. Okay. So somehow, I think, in our spiritual path, you have to become, dis, to some extent, more disidentified with your mind and with the thinker. To understand that it is a tool, that it is not who you are, that who you are is more, is connected with the spirit and that the thinker and the thinking is a tool and it is a process and it is not reality. That when you are connected to the knower, when you are connected to God, when you are connected to your source, to the being, to the spirit, there is a way of knowing and being. There is a grounding in that place that allows you to be with life and have it all be okay. In that space, there is a peace that is not conditional. And you are okay with whatever is. And when you are okay with what is there, you are able to be with it. And every ability that you have is then available in that process to you in the business of living your life. You are not living the drama that goes on in your head as an excuse for life. The soap opera is not your life. The circumstances of your life are simply the circumstances of your life. They are not your life. There is something that you are that is independent of that, that is independent of every circumstance in your life and is not conditioned on any circumstance in your life that is beyond anything, that is con deeply connected to the source of being and the source of life. And we know this, and when it is talked about at a moment, at a meeting, in a church, when you're in love, at a space, when we connect with that space, we may not have the words to describe what it is, but we know it. In the uh, back of the big book, in a medical opinion, medical view, uh, I think it's Dr. Bauer talks about the fact that if you're lucky in Alcoholics Anonymous, what will happen is you'll lose, and his words are, that excessive concentration on yourself. You'll begin to realize that the world doesn't have to work a certain way just for me to be happy. That it can work the way it's working and I can still be happy. Bob said it's not conditional anymore. The reality is, is that I can be happy regardless of what's going on. And, you know, all spiritual paths consist of four basic parts. And AA has those four basic parts, which is show up, pay attention, tell the truth, and don't be attached to the results. And if you can do those four things on a daily basis in all circumstances, you're in good shape. The, the problem with most of us is we don't, we don't like the results, so we're going to always work about changing the results. And pretty soon you find out it gets very exhausting trying to remake God's world. You know, we're supposed to do God's work and not his job. And sooner or later you realize that there's no mortgage on your life. You own it. So you better get busy doing something with it. You know, if you're not happy with the way your life is going, who's to blame? <laughs> it's amazing to me that people think there's somebody else at fault. You know, yeah, my life isn't working. Well, what are you doing? Well, it goes back to when I was a child, and you know, the Indians kidnapped me, and you know, I, I was, I was held for ransom by lions, and you know, and that's why I remember taking my granddaughter to see the movie Lion King, and there was a scene in there where 
Simba was at the watering hole, and this great voice of James Earl Jones came down and said, Simba, remember who you are. You're okay. You were always okay. You were sent out from the home office okay. The only time you have any real frustration or pain is when you're trying to resist the way it is. And it's not logical. In India, they tell the story about the guy who came home and his wife had hit the lotto. And he said, how did you do that? And she said, I kept having this reoccurring dream. Four sevens, four sevens. So I, I bet 26, and I won. And he said, but four sevens are 28. She said, you be the mathematician. I got the money. You know? And that's the way life is, you know? It's not about the reality of the logic. There is no reality in logic. It's about just, uh, the last movie I went to see was Titanic. And I said going in, I know how it ends. But the bottom line was when I, the person I went with, we watched this movie Titanic. And when the movie was over, she said, what did you think of that movie? And I said, you know, I kind of knew the ending coming in. The thing that really fascinates me is the screen. And she said, there's nothing on it now. And I said, that's what fascinates me. The fact that I came into this theater and I sat down and something came on that screen that completely held my attention for three plus hours. And then when it was over, it went back to the original thing that was there, which was the screen. And it led me to believe that's the way God is working in my life. I'm running a film constantly, but God is there. The minute I turn the film off, I get to see God in all his glory. But my deal is, is that as soon as I turn it off, I know I cease to exist. And not wanting to cease to exist, I put on another film. I sell popcorn. You know, I run the concession stand. I evaluate the film. I get other characters to play in it. I have a, you know, a supporting cast of thousands. But the deal is, is it's not, it's not a reality. The reality is the screen that's behind it. And then recently on TV, I had talked about seeing this movie, and when I talk about something, the guys I sponsor know I never go to the movie, so they called me up to watch this thing that was on about recovering the Titanic. And in that little educational thing, they showed this titanium bell that was going down to some great depth and how it had to be specially made with this little portal so it wouldn't be crushed by the water underneath. And it was made out of titanium. And when it got down to the bottom, where the, where the Titanic is, you saw all these little tiny fish swimming around. They weren't made out of titanium. And somehow they were surviving at that depth. Something was sustaining them that wasn't titanium. And that's the same thing that sustains me, the thing I can't explain, and the thing I don't need to explain. But the thing that I need to know that I don't know, I don't need to explain. You know? It's like, it's really like when a rhinoceros is born, it's already reached the quintessence of rhinocerosity. It's not going to be any more rhino than it is that moment. But when a human being is born, we're just set on the path. And being set on the path we have this great potential for growth. And that great potential for growth, as one of the great poets of our time wrote, said, life is the system whereby we lead you gently back to yourself. And you get to know who you are for the first time. That's what this is. This, isn't, this is a coming back to who we really are all along and seeing it for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what the epic journey is all about. Are you leaving because you're not interested? Or are you? I didn't care, Kenny. The, um, so you're led back to who you have always been. If I had a, a circle and drew a circle, and in that circle was everything there is to know, and I took a pie, a slice of pie out of that circle and says, that's what you know. You know a portion of what, everything there is to know. And then I took another another slice and said, this is what you don't know, and you know you don't know. 
so you don't you, you know you don't know the theory of relativity. You know you don't know something about quantum physics. You know you don't know how to knit. You know you don't know there are things you don't know. But the great bulk of the circle is what you don't know and what you don't know you don't know. Most everything that really makes a difference in life, and most everything that really makes a difference in spirituality, to me, has come from that part. It was something that I didn't know. And I didn't know I didn't know it. And it made all the difference in the world. And now I have one other thing to say about that. If you can't learn anything, you don't know. There is already some level of knowing that when you hear something that is true, you go, oh, yeah. Now, at one level, you know you didn't know it before it was said. But once it was said and you interacted with it, there was a part of you that just said, yes. You knew that before you heard it. So both those things are kind of so. But the mind alone is not just not up to the task of of what we need in life. It's a great junior partner, but it need not be in charge. And if it's in charge, if the mind and ego is in charge, we're in trouble. We have a whole system, a whole level of priority, a whole sense of separateness, a whole sense of difference, a whole sense set of animosity and hostility and a sense of wanting to be right and make other people's wrong, wanting to dominate and avoid domination. There's a whole set of business that the ego and the intellect have together that are not the business of the spirit. And what we're looking for is something that is lasting. We're looking for a peace. We're looking for an answer. Ken talked about the answer is coming home to who we have always been. It is a round trip. The process of finding God is an inside process. It is not an outside process. So we've been looking in the wrong place, with the wrong tool, for the wrong thing. And everything in the world is telling us that that's what we're supposed to do. Now we may have a sense, we may have some access, we may have some place where people say, look over here, look someplace else. But most of us are so busy that we don't have the time to do that. Most of us have tried a little of that and found it wanting or had a problem in the area, ran into someone, started to go someplace and ran into someone who we thought didn't treat us right or violated us or wanted us to shave our head and sell books at the airport or, you know, whatever it was. But we had a reason for why the process of, of a more specific search for a God, for a real connection, for the core. Okay. And I'm saying that that is what brings the meaning and the essence to life. It is the essence of life. And when we connect, there will be a part of us that goes, oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is, yeah. It's okay. It's all okay. We will be home. It will be alright. We will be alright. There will be nothing missing. We will be as strong as we have ever been. We will be able to act with great conviction and strength and freedom. We will be able to love without judgment or assessment. One of the things that is in our way of loving ourselves is the judgments that we have. In order to grow as we get older in life especially, and in order to confront some of the unworkability of our lives, you have to develop a sense of compassion. If you don't have a sense of compassion, you will not be able to look at the things in your life, the foibles, with enough gentleness to be able to be with them. But once we connect, there will be that kind of love, that kind of gentleness, that kind of openness, that kind of inclusion kind of non-judgmentality that will give us the access to that. And there will be nothing in the way. So the process we are, that is the process that we are all on. 
and we may not even know that we are on it. We may have to remind ourselves from time to time that it is that we are really spiritual beings having a human experience rather than human beings having a spiritual experience. We've got it backwards. The human part may be the junior partner. The spiritual part, the essence of it, that what we are here to do is to complete that trip. And that is what all the mythological journeys of all, you know, the, the great carriers of the mythology of our cultures which have tried to do, all of them have the message of that round trip in one way or the other. It's all okay. Just the way it is. You have no place to go. You are as wonderful as you will ever be right this moment. Not in the reduction, in the, in the, in the small way that I'm saying that. Is that there is more wonder about how you be today. And there is no place to go. You are already there. All the great masters of the world have said, you have it now. You are sitting on the box of gold. You just have not looked inside. You are looking outside. There's a deal with that external part of us where, you know, I don't know how it works in, in Minnesota, but in California, the way it works is people get into uh, meditating and vegetating, you know, and they chant and they rant, and they, they heal the child within, and they they have their chakras, their auras, their uh, cards, their hands, their feet red, you know. They they take trips to Thailand and Tibet and China because they, they know God is opposed to indoor plumbing, and uh, somehow you can't find God until you first contact, contract uh, hepatitis or dysentery. And in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it just says in the chapter to the agnostic, deep down inside every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It's only there that it can be found, the great reality. There is no other reality. Everything else is perception. You know, it's, perception is the snail sitting on a turtle going, wee! You know, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make it real. What's real is real. The rest of this stuff is just made up. And, and the reality of my life had always been that I thought my perception was reality. And subsequently, I couldn't understand why the lessers that I was integrating with didn't understand that. I mean, I had a wife that was so normal, it was scary. Notice the word had. Uh, you know, and we would have these conversations where she was in the plane of reality and I was doing drive-bys. And she would say things like, there's somebody outside. And my response was, good, that's where they belong, outside. You know, like, that's why we have an outside. When they when they come inside, you know, wake me up. They shouldn't be inside. And I remember a night in particular, she woke me up and said, I had this terrible dream. And I said, what was it? She said that you took me to the desert and you left me there. And I said, look, if you let me go back to sleep, I promise to pick you up first thing in the morning. You know, that was where I was at. I came home and said, you know, I'm very depressed, and I started to drink a lot of alcohol. And she said, what are you doing? I said, the market had its worst down day in the history of the market. And she looked at me as someone totally in reality and said, we don't have any stock. You can't argue with someone like that. They are so grounded in what's really going on when you're doing these Buzzley Berkeley drive-bys that, you know, and that's why when I went to, uh, when I went to Santa Fe, New Mexico and got into reading about our guy, St. Francis, St. Francis was, was a guy who had the lotto given to him. His dad was going to turn over armies and empires. It's not like, well, if I ever won the lotto, I'd do this. Francis won the lotto. And his dad said to him, you know, here's everything you need. You're going to become this huge, huge man in this area. And his response to that was to take off the clothes he was wearing and say to his father, I'm not ever going to do that. And his father said, well, I'm your father and you will do that. 
And as he completely disrobed down to his undergarments and took off his shoes, he said, From this point forward, the only father I have is in heaven, and I am going to go and be a fool for God. And he walked away from that. He walked away from it. And Francis dedicated his life on three basic legacies. You know, he wanted to be poor, hungry, and homeless. Try to get leverage on a guy like that. You know. So what do you want out of life, Fran? I want to be poor, hungry, and homeless. We'd have to go for sex. Yeah. Yeah. Your mind's coming back. (laughs) (laughs) The Chevy just got a (laughs) tune-up. I remember the words. If I only knew the application, I mean, this is it. it. But, but that's the deal. That was Francis's deal. And I read a little quote by his, which meant a lot to me at the time because I had just given away everything I owned a few several months back because I wanted something simple. I didn't like the way my life was going, so I made a very significant change. I just walked away from the job I had and I gave up everything I owned. And it's as I said, I put it in the car and I left. And when I read this down there, and of course they didn't, he wanted to be humble. So the, of course the powers that they built the cathedral in Santa Fe and named it after him. You know, most ornate thing you could have. And he, he wrote in one of his writings, which was, which, as I said, hit me. He said, as I look back on my life, the thing I noticed with the greatest clarity is that by having no possessions, I had no earthly attachment. By having no possessions, I had no commitment to keeping a look that I did not want to bear. This guy somehow got very insightful. We read that prayer of St. Francis, and we think he just walked into this thing. His life was very tormented. For years, he lived a very, very tormented life before he made that contact. And his prayer used to be, Who art thou, Lord? And who am I, your unworthy servant? When he got to the prayer that we use in our literature, he had paid a price in his life. And that price was the price of walking away from the familiar, the comfortable, the knowable, and going out and being a fool for God. And being a fool for God, folks, is not really in vogue. To talk about it is one thing. To actually do it is something else. The TV is full of people who talk about it. But very few people want to do it because doing it involves going against things that we think are very important. And when, as I said, one of the, one of the gifts of life I've had is death. And death hasn't made me morbid at all. It's made me more, uh, attuned to how important each day is. Because when you're down to that point where the final days are there, you ask yourself questions like, where am I going? I don't know what language I'm going to need. My passport is of no value. Whether I have the gold card or the platinum card doesn't count. Whether I've been successful monetarily or non-successful doesn't. In other words, you begin to really see what your assets are. If you're doing the program of Alcoholics Anonymous as described in the big book, you've got a leg up because you're doing a lot of service work. And you're at least attempting to maintain a contact with this higher power. So we're already in the game. So it shouldn't come as a bigger shock for us at the end. We already know the players. In Alcoholics Anonymous, by taking the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was given a wonderful gift. Instead of sitting in the audience being intimidated by the play, I got to go backstage to see where the noise came from. I got a chance to look behind the curtain and see what was going on. When I went through those steps with my sponsor, I did literally die. The person I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous could not stay sober, could not live a decent life, didn't understand the right, the, the true sense between right and wrong. I had perceptions, but I didn't know. And by taking the steps, just as they're outlined there, what happened to me was I was exposed to myself because I was evicted from my hiding place. I had been very good from hiding from myself. And those steps put me in such a posture that I had no place to go. I was completely exposed. 
And from that point forward, I had something to work with that was real because that's who I was. And I don't know if Ken will agree with the words I use, but I had that same experience of surrender. And, the, and he said the man that came to Alcoholics Anonymous could not stay sober. That man died. But my ego came back. And it caused great mischief over the next period of time. And at seven or eight years, I became at another significant crisis, and I had another surrender at depth that I had to make. And I think that that is part of what happens, is that you don't just learn at once. That you learn at once. The ego does not die. You have a clearing in which that happens. But if you don't maintain that clearing, the weeds start to grow back, and it can become kind of a jungle. And I think that that's what happened to me. And I think that the understanding that I had of one or two years of sobriety was not sufficient understanding for me at seven or eight years of sobriety. And I had to come to a deeper, even though I've been trying to deepen that understanding, and maybe to some degree did deepen it over a period of time, something of significance happened to me. And I think that, again, in my experience, most of the, the people that I know who are alcoholics, somewhere between five and 12 years, give or take, have kind of a second crisis in their life. That they're un early understand. We come in with an idea of what we want to accomplish with our sobriety. For many of us, it's very concrete and kind of physical. We have a surrender. We get active in Alcoholics Anonymous. And many of us are extraordinarily successful at accomplishing those things in our early sobriety. But there's a lot of things that were never on our list that need attending to that are out of control and out of balance that are not okay in our homes and in our work lives and in our, in our, and in our society. And that though, if we don't start having to deal with those things, which most of us do, that we drag some significant issues into our recovery and do not have enough consciousness to have jettisoned them. And I think the process of recovery is a process of waking up, and you wake up enough, and one by one those things almost fall off us. That the process of change may not be so much one of muscle and one of resistance, as Ken talked about, because when we use our mind for resistance, you don't, you know, you don't resist, because when you resist, you actually bind yourself to the thing that you're trying to resist. It is one of letting go. It is one of surrender. And when we wake up, as we become more awake, an awake person does things differently than a person who is asleep, and some of those things just fall off. They no longer are part of who we are or what we do. And we may describe that process like change. And maybe that is what, maybe that we get to a point where we are so entirely ready to have God remove us that we are then at a point in time where it is removable. And it is removed. Because we at that point in time are a clearing. We are not in charge of that process. You know, one of the great things that has come to me in sobriety, among many things, is I, I now have no fear of things that I used to have a lot of fear of. And one of the things I was terribly afraid of in my life was the dog. And it seemed to me early on in my life, I was sitting several times trying to get into places that they were paid to keep you out of. And, and so I developed this fear of dogs. And Several years ago, I was driving down a, a, a street in San Diego, side street, and it was a very hot day. It was about oh, 100, 105. And I looked in my rearview mirror, and here was this Rettweiler bearing down on my car. And, you know, it's a huge dog. It's like a Doberman on steroids. It's, it's a big animal. And I intuitively knew what to do. I pulled over to the side of the road, and I let that dog catch up with me. And I put down my window, and I looked at that dog, and that dog looked at me, and I said to that dog, what now? And that dog looked at me, and I looked at it, and just for that moment, we were on the same wavelength. Because that dog knew I had chased after a lot of shit in my life, having no idea what I was going to do if I ever caught it. <laughs> and, and, and we had this instant identification. And we just kind of hung there for a second, him checking me out, me checking him out. And then I let him catch his breath a little bit because he was kind of slobbering. And uh, I told him to hang in there. Maybe a Volkswagen would come along. 
And when I pulled away, you know, I can't say for sure, but I think the dog waved, you know, like that. <laughs> and, and that's simply because when you're there in the moment, those things happen. They just happen. Uh, I've learned that there's three things that I can't change in life, and one is the past. I can't change the past. And I, and I can't change the truth. And I can't change another person. And if I keep clear of trying to change those things, my days become pretty restful. My days are very cantankerous and, and confused and frustrated when I'm trying to change things that I'm not supposed to change, nor am I empowered to change. And life gets pretty easy. You know, it gets pretty easy. I, uh, I watch football, and I don't know if you folks like football, but in football, there's a thing called a, a, a punt returner. And I think alcoholics are punt returners. You know, it's a dangerous part of the game, and you have to run down the field with the ball with large people trying to knock you down. And I think after you hear, my experience has been, I'm a punt returner. But I've been here long enough that I never get hit anymore because I fair catch everything. You know, as soon as that ball's in the air, I don't care where the, where the big guys are. I'm fair catching. And then as soon as I get the ball safely tucked in my hand without getting hurt, you know, I'll hand it to a newcomer. And uh well, watch him maneuver a little bit, you know, like uh say, look, I got the tough yardage out to the 20. You, can, you, you do the rest of the job. I'm not that age anymore where I just don't want to take the hit. I just don't want to take the hit. I'm, I'm at ease with life. I'm good to go. I scare people sometimes because they think you're talking suicidal. I'm not talking suicidal. It's not depression. I enjoy life to the utmost. But if somehow I were to find out it's over, it would be over. You know, that's just the way it is. And once you have that, that's, uh, it's not what St. Francis had, but it's a taste. It's a flavor of what he had. And I, and I believe that as you, as you get more and more comfortable with that, the flavor gets stronger. And once you realize that you have that taste in your mouth, you can't get it out. It's ingrained. It's a part of you. And the end result is people no longer have the control they once had. I used to spend, I can't tell you nights laying awake, looking at the ceiling, working out chapters of my life. Financially, I'd be carrying numbers from one side of the ceiling to the other. How am I going to make this work? And everybody else would be sleeping. And in the morning, they'd get up real refreshed, and somehow I always looked tired. And the reason was I was tired. I was spiritually tired. I was using up all the energy that I had to work out phantom problems, most of which never happened. About 98% of the stuff that I thought would happen never happened, and the rest of it happened so fast I never had time to think about it. And that's the way it's been, you know. And, and what we're doing here today, this is like feeding a child, you know. When you start out feeding a child, you give them the pablum. They're not ready for T-bone steak. And you've you got to be fed on what you can absorb. <laughs> So if you're here and you feel like some of this is over your head, just chalk it off to, you know, bad presentation, you know, and realize that what you're supposed to get out of this, you're getting. You may not be aware of it at the time, but you're getting it. And the rest of this stuff is, if you need it, take it in. And if you can use it, use it. But as as is mentioned in the literature, this is an individual adventure. You know, your sponsor can't do this for you. The group can't do it for you. AA can't do it for you. It's an individual adventure. You're going to have to go out there and get your own shot. And in getting those shots, you'll come to your own reality, whatever that is. No one else can do it for you. I can I can fair catch and hand you the ball, but now it's yours. But you can get a guide. A couple of years ago, I went elk hunting with my sponsor. My sponsor just had 48 years of sobriety, Warren. And uh, we went to a, a place where you paid quite a bit of money, and it was 600,000 acres of land. And when you pay a fair amount of money to hunt, and you would like to find something, one of the things you really need is a guide. I had very little background or information that would make me well-equipped to go on that piece of property myself and try to find what I was hunting. And it's extraordinary. When you find a guide and you're really interested in it, that person, you know, your interaction and the conversations you have with that person are very different. 
you can have many of those conversations in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's important, and, and there are people who you can get to help you in your spiritual walk, in your AA walk, your sponsor. They don't have to be perfect people. If you're really an interested traveler, you're just talking. To, we're all travelers. We're talking about traveling. What are you doing? We're stimulating each other. It isn't like you have to find the perfect person. They don't. They don't have the perfect person. But you're going to want a guide, and you're going to want a relationship with fellow travelers. You're going to want to get together after the evening meal is over and sit around and BS about how your travel is going. And it is extraordinary. I mean, it really if you're really going to be a traveler and you're really interested in it, you're going to want that camaraderie. You're going to want the help. You're going to want the advice. And then you're going to want sharing because something will come out in that process of the sharing. And you need a practice. You need a village. You need a community in which to have this unfold and take place. And that's what we are for each other. There's something, this is, everything we do is together. You know, right now we're talking, but you're listening. But we're creating, whatever is being created here today is being created together. I promise you, we didn't know what we were going to do when we sat down. And if we sat down with a different group and if we went to Indiana to do this thing, what we would be saying would be considerably different. There would be parts of it that would be similar, but there is something in the permission in the, in, the, in, in, in the interaction that we are together that allows us to have this conversation. This conversation is not just our words. This conversation is permitted by your listening. The words we are speaking are the ones that are permitted. And if you don't believe that, remember the last time you gave a talk at a detox. Because it is harder. There is, there is not the listening. There is not the reception. So there is, you know, two things going on, you know, that are, that are very special. You know, someone sent me, you guys, this is just uh, some information, you may know it already, but somebody sent me a clipping from one of the New York newspapers and, uh, about the uh, chaplain who was killed and carried out by the firemen there in New York. I think his name was Father Michael. And Father Michael was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the day that his funeral took place, he was 23 years sober. And when the building was coming down, the other firemen knew they could get him out, and they asked him to leave. And he supposedly responded with, what? The men are here. And so the reality of life is, it's, it's doing the thing that you know you have to do, regardless of the risk you have to take. And then when you do those kind of things in life, when you put yourself in harm's way for another person or you do something that extends you, God's got the game rigged. He, he plays a rigged game. It's not a fair game. And what he does is every time you help somebody else, in some way or another, he helps you to be a better person. And you just can't lose. The more you give, the more you get. It's a, it's a darndest game. And I learned that game when I was running numbers from a guy who was there wasn't a mafia, but if there was, he would have been in it. And I remember going to him and saying, Tony, because I had heard in school that about God, I said, do you believe in this God thing? And he said, why? And I said, they, they were talking about the devil today. And I didn't know about the devil. And what he told me was very interesting. He said, Ken, do we ever lose when we book, take books? And I said, well, every now and again, somebody hits. But no, no, no. Do we ever lose, is the question. And the answer is no. The money spread, we never lose. And he said, do you think God would make a game he lost that? And it hit me, no. God wouldn't make a game he lost that. And as I've gotten to the point on that today, I can tell you, whether you accept it or not, doesn't matter. But I know this. I know this from the depth of my being, that God is in such hot, hot pursuit of all of us that none of us get away. Absolutely none. He's just in such hot pursuit. Sometimes you don't even know it, but that's his deal. He likes to be anonymous. But he's not going to let anybody get away. And the reality of that is, is that eventually you'll touch on this thing, whether it's now, later, or whenever. I don't know what happens next, but I know in the now the presence of God. You notice it says as we become conscious of his presence, it doesn't say when he shows up. 
So God is always there. It's just a matter of being in touch. And I start the day most of the time by doing stupid things. I used to have a trampoline when my knees were good, and I used to put on the theme from Rocky. And I used to jump up and down in a full-length mirror nude on a little trampoline I had. That's what it did to me, too. You know, the same thing you're doing. And it would get me in such a good frame of mind that I could go out and face anything. You know, like, I mean, I figure, how, how really could I be serious having just witnessed what I witnessed? You know? And so the bottom line is, is that that's the deal here. You, you know, you have to re- real, really see, sooner or later, if you're lucky, you come to the, to the reality that this is, this is all a joke and we're the punchline. And if you don't get the joke, then you miss out on the best punchline. And just remember, if you don't hear anything else from me today, God is in such hot pursuit, he's just not going to get away.